just this morning prior to our recording the trailer for Scream which is actually Scream 5 and you know to their credit they didn't like turn the S in Scream into a 5 oh, or something like that. Oh what a that. missed opportunity. Yeah. How do you uh, pronounce I, that? 5 cream? Though? 5 cream. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Russ Fisher, the editorial director of the Box Office Studios, and I am here with Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, Rebecca Polly, the deputy editor of Box Office Pro, and Sean Robbins, the chief analyst at Box Office Pro. We're going to talk about Bond's domestic debut. We're going to talk about lingering performance of other movies, specialty box office, overseas, all sorts of stuff. We also have a wonderful interview with Serena Gill, the head of film at the Ever. Man Cinema's circuit in the UK, where No Time to Die became the chain's top grossing title of all time this weekend after only 10 days in release. So we're going to talk to Serena about how that all worked out and what that means for Everyman Cinemas. But first, let's bring you a word from our sponsor. And this week's episode is brought to you by Box Office Pro's Commemorative Centennial Edition. Celebrate 100 years of our magazine by advertising in our Centennial Edition, reaching over 4,000 top executives and decision makers in theatrical distribution and exhibition this December. Our magazine is the official publication of the National Association of Theater Owners, reaching the most influential figures in the industry, both in the U.S. and around the world. Special rates are available to celebrate our 100th anniversary in publication. Email susan at boxoffice.com to be included in this historic edition. Rebecca, let's talk about this past weekend's uh, domestic haul and, uh, and let's talk about Bond. Let's talk, talk about, about Bond. Bond. Yeah, so Russ, I don't think you could be with us when we were recording last week, but there was some discussion with Sean regarding the outsized performance of Venom Let There Be Carnage, maybe kind of causing the predictions for No Time to Die to inch upwards. So, you know, there was a thought that this film may very well be the one to cross the 100 million mark, first one to do so of the pandemic era on its opening weekend. That did not Turn out to be the case. No Time to Die grossed 55.2 million domestic on just around 4,400 screens. That's not necessarily, and Sean, I'll ask you to kind of provide your chief analyst spin on this in a second. That's not a bad thing. It's certainly not as good as we hoped, but it is the fourth highest opening weekend in franchise history, which is pretty good considering we're still in the middle of a pandemic here. You know, you compare a film like No Time to Die and Venom Let There Be Carnage, which did so unexpectedly well. Venom does appeal more towards a younger audience than the Bond franchise. No Time to Die is, I believe the technical term is long as hell, <laughs> uh, almost three hours. You're certainly not able to fit as many show times in as you were for, for the 97 minute Venom Let There Be Carnage. You know, if I'm a teacher and I'm looking at this as a grading assignment, I give this if it's strictly pass fail, it's a pass, but with a lot of room for improvement. And I think that's how exhibitors feel right now. And I think to your point, the hype going into this was already kind of building even before Venom. And then Venom just really kind of escalated it. And we started seeing reports, I mean, even internally measuring pre-sales that were 
really strong in a kind of a surprising way for the franchise, suggesting that the potential was there for more. But this very clearly outlines the fact that any hope of bringing back that segment of older moviegoers that have not come back yet is going to take a little more time. The studio itself says around 25% of people that came back this weekend, it was their first movie back during the pandemic. So that's a good start. You know, this will have a snowball effect and it will help other movies, I think. You needed a, a kind of a high profile IP out there, but this will, in effect, probably bring back more of those people for award season contenders over the next few months. Films like The Last Duel, which again, we'll talk about. Maybe not immediately, uh, but in the months ahead, West Side Story, something that could really benefit from these moviegoers going back right now. But at the same time, it also does showcase not only the age of the Bond fans, but just the fact that this Daniel Craig run really kind of had a confined fan base that didn't grow necessarily. And arguably, I think a lot of people might have felt his finale was Spectre six years ago. It, it certainly ended a lot like a Bond film probably would if it was the actor's last turn. And speaking of Venom, Let There Be Carnage, that film enjoyed a sophomore frame of 31.7 million from just around 4,200 screens. Guys, that puts it at 141.4 million domestic after two weekends. It is behind what the first Venom was making at this point in release, but it's only behind by 1%, which pretty good. I'm excited to see how this one does over the next few weeks, what the drops are like as we start getting into some of those big October, December releases. It definitely is, and it will be front-loaded. Having the holiday the second weekend kind of boosted its comparison to the first movie, so it'll it'll probably level out from here on. But the fact that it still ended up over 30 million in its second frame was higher than what our forecast was at. But it also, you know, that was considering it was opening, it was, it was going against Bond, and it lost virtually all of its premium screens. So if there ever is a, a circumstance where dropping over 60% isn't that bad, this is it. So we'll see now what happens with Halloween Kills and Dune, which that'll be the big one that really kind of comes in and I think and goes for that Venom audience. But Halloween, to a certain extent, will as well. Now, Russ, talk to us about the specialty market here, because a film that I really enjoy, Neons to Tan, came out. You know, Daniel and I have discussed this on the podcast before. It's not the most accessible general audience film. Let's just say there's a lot of body horror, a lot of, a lot of ooky stuff going on there. Uh, I, I was curious to see how this one would do. Neons to Tan is now a movie about well, it's difficult to say what it's a movie about exactly, but maybe we could say that it's this decade's inheritor of the crown once held by David Cronenberg's crash in which people had sex in and with cars and stood as one of the stranger movies most of us have ever seen. It's also one of my favorite movies. Anyway, Titan is a million dollar movie now. It took $212,000 on 474 screens to hit 1 million domestic in its second weekend, which is a pretty nice outcome. We've also got a 24 Lamb opening to 1 million on 585 screens and Bleecker Street's Mass opening to 13K on four screens. But that's a $3,371 per screen average, which is a pretty nice little figure. So yeah, Lamb, Rebecca or Daniel, have you guys seen Lamb yet? I'm assuming no. Sean hasn't had a chance. Uh, oh man, it, it's it's on my list. Folk horror. I like folk horror. It's great. Folk horror is fun. It's great. I love folk horror. Yeah, yeah. big fan. I saw the 4K restoration of Zulowski's Possession over the weekend. Oh. So that oh, that was I'm my jealous. dose of anything horror or disturbing. 
how to let that one sit. Possession's your dose of disturbing for like two years. Yeah. That is an overwhelming, an amazing movie, but an overwhelming movie. And my first time Absolutely. back at, a, at a, the Metrograph in New York City finally opened back oh, up. So. I'm glad I'm glad those guys are back open. I know that they were taking a, a bit longer, but it's a good addition, I think, to the New York City specialty cinema scene. Open with possession. Put your flag in the ground. <laughs> <laughs> and these are great results, guys, I think, across the board. I think, obviously, the big headline is that Bond came in at around expectations that preceded Venom's debut. Is that fair to say? I think as, as we opened yeah. the episode with, with Sean and Rebecca stating that Venom's debut reconfigured those expectations that we had for No Time to Die. But let's take that out of the equation. Two weeks ago, a $55 million opening weekend for this title, I think would have been positive, no matter what. This is the first back-to-back $100 million weekends that the North American box office has had since February 2020. And we're getting there through these specialty openers and holdovers. We're getting there through a competitive top three in the box office. And that's going to continue as we look at that slate coming in further down the schedule. And Sean's going to share his insights on what is coming out next weekend. We'll get to that in a little bit. But let's look at the overseas perspective real fast, because that momentum that we're seeing right here in the North American box office in the recovery, still very much driven by Venom and Bond present overseas as well. With Venom Let There Be Carnage opening to 20 million in Latin America. That's the top performer of the pandemic in the region, narrowly edging out F9, the Fast and the Furious franchise, guys, as you know, one of the most popular in Latin America. It helped Mexico hit an admissions record over the weekend. It still opened slightly under F9 with a $2.5 million debut in the market, but overall the market in Mexico hitting that admissions record of the pandemic, so important during this period. Elsewhere in Russia, Venom 2 kept the top spot with a $4.9 million take. Building on that billion ruble debut that Rebecca mentioned last weekend, the film has now reached a fantastic market total in Russia of 23.9 million. That's a great figure there for a Hollywood title. And we have to also look at its dance partner, No Time to Die, which hit a $259 million overseas total this weekend from 66 markets. Pairing that with a U.S. opening weekend, that puts the latest Bond film at $314 million globally. So guys, we have here Venom, we have here Bond, both of them after two weekends, over $300 million worldwide. That's a great start, especially considering that China still is not in the equation for either of those films. So far, we have openers for Bond, like France, opening to $10.3 million this weekend from just over 1,000 screens. Guys, that's the biggest opening weekend of the pandemic in the French market. Elsewhere, we saw Russia opening in second place behind Venom to 5.1 million. Holdovers, great figures here, under 30% drops for No Time to Die across its top European markets. That means UK and Ireland adding 20.7 million, a 27% drop in its sophomore frame, hitting a $71.4 million total. We're gonna have the head of film at Everyman Cinemas, a UK cinema circuit, Serena Gill, talking all about that record in her circuit shortly. 
And then rounding off these European markets, we had Germany dropping 23%, adding 11.8 million to reach a $32.6 million total. And the Netherlands dropping 26%, adding 3 million in its second weekend to reach an $8.4 million total. The global market well in its way to a recovery. And to take us back domestically here, Sean, Daniel mentioned that this past weekend was the second consecutive weekend that we've seen a $100 million gross at the domestic box office. Only the first time that we've had two consecutive $100 million weeks since the start of the pandemic. With what we have coming out this weekend, both on the general and the specialty side, any shot we're reaching $100 million combined this week. So I think everything will really depend on two things. One, how well Halloween opens, especially how well James Bond holds, because as Daniel just covered, a lot of those overseas performances are really reflecting not just strong holds, but in many cases on par with Skyfall and Spectre. I mean, just running down the studio email over the weekend, you saw that comparison note many times. And that that wasn't the case here domestically. So now the question is, does No Time to Die live up to a 52% drop, which is what Spectre saw in its second frame six years ago against very little competition. No Time to Die won't really lose its premium screen, so that'll be helpful. But I think if you're releasing Halloween Kills, that's probably going to attract fans of a lot of different ages. And anybody who really wanted to see Bond might still be going out to see it, but it's also looking a little bit more front-loaded than we're used to. I'm not sure we quite hit 100 again next weekend, but certainly more weekends in the very near future, we'll be, we'll be hitting that benchmark. And when you say Halloween kills will attract the same demographic roughly as roughly. No Time to Die. A little different. Yeah. yeah, I don't mean to compare it too directly, just in terms of the fact that it's a 40 plus year old franchise. So there will be a lot of people over 35 who want to go see Halloween. Attract them to what? Attract them to theaters or attract them to Peacock, uh-huh. which, is, which is not question. a question that No Time to Die had to <laughs> yeah. deal with. Right. And that's such a crucial question there, Rebecca, because there's another title here, slightly older, let's say, you know, on the 35 side of 18 to 35 with Ridley Scott's The Last Duel, a film that I really, really liked. I saw this at Cine Europe. I think it's among the best I've seen this year. Sean, how much of an impact is this battle going to have between these two titles while Bond and Venom are still floating around in the marketplace. Yeah, it's really kind of another version of stress testing that we've talked about all year because now we have a a very targeted adult drama with Ridley Scott and Ben Affleck and Matt Damon and Jodie Comer, the kind of movie you would expect to do fairly well close to award season. You know, Bond is clearly showing that a lot of that older audience is not quite ready to come back. And this is that movie that really needs that older audience. It doesn't have that national media attention of James Bond. And Venom is showing us what the audiences that are coming to theaters now want to see. Exactly. Which is Tom Hardy doing funny voices <laughs> and a scene where a superhero, anti-hero character yeah. goes to a rave. Daniel, does The Last Duel have any of that? <laughs> no, it's got a duel. It's okay. the last one, actually. And it's also got sexual assault. So it's going to be a... A tough Not so pitch, much the fun-loving Venom. No, it's a great movie. I can't recommend it enough, especially to see it on a big screen. I think it's Ridley Scott's best since Gladiator. But Sean, you're absolutely right. I think we have to start looking at these titles right now, not only on their artistic merits, but on their commercial prospects, just where we are in the industry. 
it seems like there's a lot of traffic right now with titles, a great problem to have. I'd rather have this right. than not enough titles, <laughs> right? I don't want to complain about it, please. Like this is what we all asked for for a year and a yeah, half and we're getting exactly. it. Exactly. We can't we can't be sour <laughs> on it now. Home to roost. But hey, is it too early to even predict a top 5 in the market? And that's a good thing by the way. But where do you guys think these things can slot in? It's the first time we're asking ourselves this question. There's no clear sequential top 5 at the box office for this upcoming weekend. Yeah, I mean, I think if the only probably obvious is Halloween, I would be very surprised if it's not number one. Um, even though the last film, it leaned older, it was 59% over the age of 25 three years ago. That's atypical for horror because that usually plays a lot younger. So that will be a big determinant in how high it ranks. But after that, it gets very muddied. I would presume Bond and Venom will be fairly close. But Last Duel, it's very interesting where that could land. That will give us a little bit more insight as to how many more audiences are slowly coming back. So that'll be a very interesting competition at the box office this weekend with multiple holdovers vying for that top spot. An adult-leaning awards contending drama, The Last Duel, hitting theaters, and a day-and-date Horror movie, Halloween Kills, also entering the market. A lot of great question marks. I think, as Sean has been saying, every weekend is a learning lesson. Every weekend gives us more data points, more insights as to how this industry is operating with this new distribution model era that is upon us. But let's talk about movies that are coming a little bit further down the schedule. Russ, I know you've been personally involved with a new project our parent company has been doing, the Box Office Trailer Network, compiling a lot of new trailers for B2C audiences on YouTube. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And then we'll go into some of the hottest trailers that debuted on YouTube this week. Yeah, Daniel, on YouTube, the Box Office Trailer Network is, as its name suggests, a whole network of channels which present movie trailers and clips from movies in a whole variety of languages. You know, one of our bigger individual trailer channels is One Media, and we have a variety of others, but it's a great way that you can see the most recent trailers, clips from classic movies and sometimes not so classic movies, but things that I think have great entertainment value. And we've had a couple of big trailer releases this week, just this morning, prior to our recording, the trailer for Scream, which is actually Scream 5. And, you know, to their credit, they didn't like turn the S in Scream into a 5 oh, or something like that. Oh, what a that. missed opportunity. Yeah. How do you uh, pronounce I, that? 5 Cream? Though? 5 Cream. Scream is the first movie in the franchise not directed by the late Wes Craven for perhaps obvious reasons. So yeah, did you guys get to take a look at that? I have not actually seen it yet, but I'm kind of excited. Yeah, it looked good to me. I mean, it looked like they're not trying to reinvent the wheel, you know, as far as the franchise is concerned. There's Ghostface haunting, you know, generically attractive teens and kind of the old guard of Sidney Prescott, Gail Weathers and Sheriff Deputy Dewey. Deputy Deputy, De Deputy <laughs> David Arquette. He's probably a general in the army. At FBI point. director yeah. Dewey. Yes, yes. There to kind of establish the slasher rules. And it was great to see those characters. I actually didn't know if this was going to be a reboot or a sequel or a reboot quill, whatever we call them these days. So it was great to see these characters that are well known in the franchise coming back. The movie's coming out on January 14th, 2022. Interesting release date. As we know, the original Scream broke with conventions by releasing in December on Christmas, if I'm not mistaken, or around Christmas. 
did fantastic business in that corridor, a corridor that wasn't traditionally reserved for this type of movie. And then a completely opposite end of the spectrum, we have the trailer for Joe Wright's Cyrano, a musical adaptation of Cyrano de Bergerac starring Peter Dinklage. Then we also uh, got to see the first trailer for Red Rocket, the latest movie from Sean Baker, who made Tangerine and The Florida Project previously. This movie looks very much in the vein of those, while also not being at all related. It's very much its own thing. But yeah, what did you guys think of Red Rocket? Just the trailer turned it into a movie I want to see instantly. Yeah, I actually saw the title at the New York Film Festival a couple of weeks back. Russ, I can't recommend it enough. This is very similar to other Sean Baker titles in that it looks into underground and informal economies in the United States. People that are working and living in the margins of the United States. There is a madcap element to it. Basically, imagine an early Scorsese movie, but instead of gangsters, it's porn stars. <laughs> so there's there's definitely this like manic. You should joy. have led with that. I should have opened with that. Yeah, that's it's not too late to have A24 put that on the poster. You can pull quote that, guys. Feel free. But it's a fantastic movie with a nice edge to it. I really enjoyed it. I'm really looking forward to seeing this hit theaters on December 3rd, 2021. Well, thanks guys uh, for a great rundown of everything that happened, everything that is coming ahead here on the film industry, on the Box Office Podcast. We are going to be moving on to our feature interview segment with Serena Gill, the head of film at UK's Everyman Cinemas Circuit. The circuit that this weekend notched its top earning title of all time after only 10 days of having no time to die in release. And we are here with Serena Gill, the head of film over at Everyman Cinemas. Serena, thank you for joining us. Uh, we were there at Barcelona last week for Cine Europe. A lot of things going on. First off, what were your reactions of the event last week? Oh, I thought the event was amazing. I, I've got to be honest, I didn't think, you know, throughout this year that it was actually going to go ahead. It seemed um, somewhat, again, I'll use the word unbelievable that I just used before, <laughs> to think that, you know, we could all get together like this. So I think the, obviously it was very different to previous years, but I think being able to come together as an industry like that was, yeah, it was an amazing experience. And you know, the first time in in about two years that I've been able to see such big slate presentations. So yeah, very excited for the year ahead. Yeah, I, I agree, Serena. It was a, a great opportunity to be with colleagues and hear a lot of perspectives. Of course, you've been quite busy over at Everyman with No Time to Die opening in the UK and in only 10 days becoming the highest grossing title ever for your circuit. A huge congratulations. And I have to ask, how did you guys get there? How did you engage your audience to come back and support you when they can see No Time to Die anywhere? Yes, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure I have a, a clear-cut answer for that. I think one of the things that benefited us is that throughout the pandemic, we really stayed in contact with our customers. So even when we were closed, we were engaging with them as much as possible. When we were allowed to open last year, obviously, despite the fact that there was very little content, we opened our doors we put on old films. We did as much as we could over the past year. And I think we've seen quite a good reopening this year in the momentum build, but everything really has been about No Time to Die and that this is a film that we've really been waiting for, that we thought that 
the people that were kind of sitting on the fence about whether or not to come back to the cinema, this would really get them off their sofas then and onto ours. And it was a, a difficult timing, of course, if we go back to March 2020, I think all of us in the industry were ready to book this title and to start playing it. I know here in the United States, exhibitors had already sold tickets. Uh, we were ready to go. The marketing campaign was up. It got delayed before the closures. What was that process like starting in March 2020 up until, I guess, last summer between Bond getting rescheduled and tenant opening? What was that first closure like for every man? It was really hard. Nothing that anybody has ever experienced before. Just the first day that we heard, well, Bond's moving was a bit of a reality check that, okay, this pandemic is, you know, is a, is a lot more than we probably originally thought one or two months ago. So it was very, very difficult closing the doors and not really sure when we would be able to reopen them. And then the, the challenge came reopening the doors and not knowing what to play. But obviously we had Tenet. I think the idea from that was that we were back on the recovery path. I think Bond had then been dated for, I think it was October last year. And then obviously we went back through another recovery closure process. And what lessons did you take from that first experience in reopening and re-engaging with your consumers through Tenet? And how did those lessons influence your approach with No Time to Die this month? I think the big lesson was to really think outside the box there was no reverting back to the old way of working. We really had to up our game to focus really hard on every single customer coming back in through the doors. You know, that led to us playing more films than we've ever played before, doing more marketing we've ever done before. And it's something that we're definitely focused on right now is not just going with a kind of blanket approach to programming. It's you're really thinking hard about how much can we diversify our offering? How can we get new people in? How can we re-engage with customers? So yeah, it's made us work a lot harder, I'd say. So as we're talking about bringing in different variety of titles, more diversity of content into screens, especially right now where the studio slate is still volatile, I think it's safe to say, not as bad as it was earlier in the pandemic, but definitely still changing. You've actually, through Everyman, established programming partnerships with different brands. Right now, you've got this Rebel screening series with Jaguar, the luxury car maker. I found that very interesting. Could you tell our audience a little bit on that concept, how it came about and what some of its goals are to work with top brands in bringing films to your cinemas? Yes, of course. We do work with a lot of brand partnerships at the moment. Obviously, uh, one of the big ones that we have is the Jaguar partnership, which is labelled as the Rebel Screening. So the idea behind that is to shine a light on diverse films that maybe need a bit more kind of marketing, promotion and attention to reach audiences. And then we try to eventize those screenings as much as possible. So being able to offer up either an event, a Q&A or just something a little bit different to help reach new audiences. But that's one of the great things about working with other brands and that they can sometimes help reach people that we might often can't. So yeah, it's a very core cool part of the business and, uh, and a really great way to kind of diversify our offering really. So it's special screenings once a month in different locations and you've got your brand partner there really amplifying those marketing efforts to their segment of the audience. And of course, through programming, it's something that 
the brand itself is attaching their corporate values to what's going on. I find that absolutely fascinating. It's something that I think circuits can emulate here in the US, working with different brands and even independent cinemas. If I think of a small location here, let's say with like two or three screens in a small town, how can I apply that? You've got restaurants, you've got wine shops, you've got different local businesses, bookstores, where you can work together to bring in these different perspectives in programming. A very interesting program that you guys did in talking about content diversity. One of the things that you spoke about quite passionately at Cine Europe last week in terms of local content is the need for the UK market to better define and develop what its national cinema is. Could you tell us a little bit about that experience on how that came about? It's definitely something that it's not necessarily a question we were asking ourselves a lot, say, two years ago, but it's one that keeps coming up now. And that's obviously because of the experience that we had last year and that other territories were able to really thrive on local films, whereas we didn't necessarily have that to fall back on. The question, it's the million dollar question, isn't it? Is is Bond a British film? I would say yes. It's fundamentally British in the way that it, it speaks to the UK audience more so than in anywhere else. And we've seen that, obviously, in the way that the UK market has over-indexed on Bond, especially in comparison to the US, for example. So I would say yes, it's a British film. But then I think this is where we now need to differentiate with the word local film. So I would say that Bond is British, but it is also a global event film. Whereas, so you have your global British film and then local British films. So I think that's where a lot of the conversation was coming from last week in that the UK industry needs to focus a little bit more on the local British films, one that could you know, release in this market without necessarily being guided by what's happening in other territories. So I think, yeah, that would be the way that, that I think we ourselves can really expand the market here. Do you think that's one of the top lessons that you're taking in exhibition and distribution after such a challenging period? I think so. I think there's gonna there's certainly going to be a lot of lessons to take away, but, but that seems to be at the kind of the forefront of, of conversations at the moment. And it's something that everybody can get involved with. It's something that very much starts with the, the studios making the films and thinking right from the beginning about what films we need to make to speak to local audiences. But then it obviously falls on us as exhibitors to really get those films out to audiences. So it's, yeah, it's a nice lesson in that everybody can kind of really, really pitch in getting that to a better level. And uh, thanks again for this great conversation. To close up this chat, looking at the UK market as a whole, it's a very competitive sector for exhibitors. You have three mega circuits in Odeon, in View, in Cineworld, a number of national circuits like yourselves with a number of locations. After the pandemic crisis that we just lived, from your perspective at Everyman, how is the sector looking like right now? Well, I'm, I'm glad this question came now and not a few weeks ago. <laughs> the sector is really looking great. I'm, I mean, what's great with Bond is that you know, we're doing amazingly well. As you said, it's, it's already become our top selling film of all time in just 10 days, which is just remarkable. But the amazing thing is that everybody is doing well on this title, which is what we want to see. We want to, we want to see every cinema chain doing their best. We want to see new films come in and kind of follow that you know, run off this momentum that Bond's now started and basically just have a really thriving marketplace. I think thankfully for the rest of Q4, we've got so many different titles to look forward to. So you have blockbusters, 
We've got the London Film Festival happening right now, so there's a lot of really good independent titles that are getting a lot of traction. We've got three new kids' films coming up, which is wow. amazing because we haven't had those in, yeah. in about uh, Can we August take one of them? Can we borrow one of them here in the US? We, we, we need them too. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I'd say it's a very, very exciting time. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, congratulations, Serena, for your great success around No Time to Die, the top grossing title in the Everyman circuit of all time in only 10 days in release. Thanks again. Thank you. Thanks again to Serena Gill from Everyman Cinemas for joining us. The Box Office Podcast is produced by Record Edit Podcast and The Box Office Company. Thank you for listening. And please join us again next week. Thank you.